Welcome back to Humans of Purpose, the weekly podcast featuring conversations with local purpose-driven leaders, leaders creating social impact through their work and fostering in a new era of social progress. We want you to listen, connect, and grow with us. Learn more at humansofpurpose.com. I feel like I just live my purpose and I don't think, I think my job, I'm really lucky that unfortunately my job is fits perfectly within my purpose and maybe I wouldn't even be able to stay there if it didn't, to be perfectly honest. Um, because the older that I get, the more clear I am about what I want to achieve and I want to have impact um, and I want what I do to have meaning and to to change things and change systems and change people's lives and things like that. Welcome back to Humans of Purpose. Great to be back with you here as always. Well, those were the inspiring words of Sally Hines, who is the Chief Operating Officer at The Big Issue and Homes for Homes. And we're joined in this episode also by my wife and occasional co-host, Louise, who you may remember from episode 100 of the podcast. It's been a massive week at Humans of Purpose. Thank you to everyone who's completed our second annual listener type form survey. There's still time to get that in if you want to have your say on the Humans of Purpose experience to date and to go into the mix to win some amazing prizes too. That one takes less than five minutes to do, and it helps me to better understand who you are, what you want me to improve, and how to create something that adds more value to your life each week. I'm also keen to move the podcast to a community-supported model, and I want to understand how, with your help, I can ensure that the podcast is financially sustainable into the future. You can find that survey link in today's show notes, and also by heading to humansofpurpose.com and hitting the launch me button down the bottom of the page. A special thank you and welcome to our three new Patreon supporters who have stepped up and answered the call to support the podcast. Welcome to our Patreon community, Joe, Lyndon, and Olivia. This brings us close to 10 Patreon supporters with the goal of hitting 30 in the near future. Your support via Patreon is important to me, and it's the main way that I measure the success of the podcast in terms of the value it brings you, the listeners. Supporting me in the podcast via Patreon is your way of saying the podcast is socially valuable and has an impact on you and our community collectively. Our Patreon supporters get a stack of perks, including a custom Humans of Purpose thank you gift on sign up, as well as access to dedicated Humans of Purpose plus Patreon feed that gives them 20% more content each week and some behind the scenes discussion. They get access to deep dive segments that are cropped out of our general podcast feed each week and some extras too. I've just had our latest thank you gift merch design with our new Humans of Purpose Patreon-exclusive logo centre print and their terrific shoulder tote bags from Azcolor, a great way to stylishly get your shopping or beach gear to and from the home in a sustainable, planet-respecting manner. Our next Patreon supporters to sign up will get one of these until they run out, and we've done a fairly modest run this time, so I suggest you get in quick if you are keen to get one of those uh, exclusive bags. Today's podcast with Sally is an absolute cracker, so I highly recommend sticking around till the end. And thanks uh, quickly to Will Beresford for connecting us up and making this podcast happen, as well as um, Gemma O'Brien, who's a, a good mate and always there finding me quality people to, to back and put on the show. So um, yeah, Sally's got an amazing breadth of experience across um, employment, um, social community areas, and now working with the homeless community. And um, some of the solutions that are being worked on by the big issue are nothing short of groundbreaking and truly on a global scale. So I think there's a lot to learn from this podcast. And there's also some amazing personal insights about career journey, growth, um, and how to really take your own skills and development to the next level. So 
for me, this was an all-out, um, really valuable uh, experience, and um, it was made even better by having my lovely wife there too to to ask some uh, deep and probing questions as she always does. So, I hope you enjoy the episode today. A quick shout out to our wonderful Patreon supporter community who make each week's podcast possible. So, thank you to Bonnie B, Misha D, Times Two, McCartan, Joel F, Stuart M, and of course now Olivia, Lyndon, and Joe. Your support is much appreciated, and look forward to catching up with you guys soon. Well, I'm absolutely thrilled to welcome Sally Hines, friend and chief operating officer at uh, The Big Issue and Homes for Homes. Welcome to the podcast, Sally. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's a pleasure, and I'd be remiss if I didn't welcome my lovely wife, cardiologist and occasional co-host, Louise. Thank you for having me. Sorry, my voice is not all there today. (laughs) That's all right. All good. Great to be here as a team with Cyril, as always, which is fun. (laughs) Um, Sally, I would love to hear a bit more about uh, your journey into where you are today. Um, and then we'll, we'll, there's so many jumping off points and so many topics I'm keen to explore with you, but we might just start with how you got into the space and how you ended up where you are as um, COO of The Big Issue. Sure. So I was thinking about this because I'm a fan of the podcast. So I've listened to it. I've listened to other people's stories. Um, and I think the defining thing that kind of threads through my life is work and the power of work and why work is important. Um, so I got my first job um, as soon as you could, which I think was 14 months and 14 years and seven months and a day or something. Um, and I was working at Muffin Break and I was super keen to get a job because I wanted financial independence <laughs> um, as much as $60 a fortnight could provide financial independence. With. And muffins, surely. And, yeah, muffin Break, yes. Um, and so what happened was I had that job and I loved it. Um, and I loved the independence and I'm quite a consumer, even though I know that's not cool anymore, but unfortunately a lot of things spark joy for me. Um, so there's a lot of things that I want to purchase on a regular basis, (laughs) um, even as a 14 and seven month year old. Um, and so that work for me created this independence. And I think that that's something that's kind of stuck in my head and kind of gone through my life with, um, so I finished year 12 went to uni um, and did art science, tried to get into science law, but I wasn't smart enough. Um, and so did art science, which is effectively doing year 12 again for another four years was what it felt like. Oh, man. Yep. It was, but not as cool because school was much easier than uni. But didn't you get to do some cool arts-like subjects? Yeah. That had but, no real relevance to <laughs> real life? Yeah, like Civil War history, <laughs> yeah. Renaissance history, although I feel like that's really useful going to Europe now because you can kind of point at something and go, yeah. that's a something-something Cezanne something, <laughs> <laughs> and just say it with force and people Gusto. believe you. Yes. Yeah. Um, and so uni was a side note because the actual thing that was interesting to me in those first years once you finished school was work again. So I was working at Officeworks um, and I loved it. I loved having the friends. I loved having the freedom again, that the financial freedom that I had as a younger person could fill my car up with petrol, could go wherever I wanted to go, um, could do whatever I wanted to go. Had no problem going to the pub four nights a week because I had money and I was ready to spend it on $1 pots. Um, oh, back when they were $1, the good old days. $1 pots and $2 spirits. Like, <laughs> is there anything better? How was there ever a time when spirits were only double the pot price? I know. You could go out literally with $7 and you could have a really good night. <laughs> and not to forget 50 cent petrol. Oh. <laughs> yes, yes. It seems like some time ago. That. The way I like to benchmark history is like $6.50 movie tickets and now they're, what, $22 plus yeah, candy bars, another 20 Can't go anywhere. You can't. Can't take it, me or anyone anywhere. So I would have had to definitely had a good job still now. I think it must be much harder now for young people um, for so many reasons, but one of these reasons is trying to get that first gig. So did the office works for four years, managed to 
finished uni, almost dropped out um, halfway through halfway through third year. Um, but I did this subject called organisational psychology, which is about work and motivating people to work and leading people and managing people and rewards and recognition. And suddenly something clicked and I kind of got what my thing was because I didn't have business and I wasn't an accountant. I wasn't trying to be a doctor. Mm. I wasn't trying to be a lawyer because I still hadn't got into law because my grades continued to be appalling at university. Mm. Um, and so this psychology subject made me continue on in and finish my fourth year of uni. Um and then I went on straight away and I did my Master's of Human Resource Management. So I kind of found my little niche. So you, that was your sort of um, light bulb moment where you said, this is for me in the org psych subject. Yeah, it was a pivot moment because up until that point, um, I really couldn't put a, my finger on what it would be that I would do. Mm. Um, and being around people who were doing like biomedical science or my best friend was um, studying law at Monash, like I had no idea they're going to be a lawyer or they're going to be a biomedical scientist. And because of the way I did an art science degree, I was going to be, yeah, a jack of all a trades. Of yeah, some massive. Sort. I, I, <laughs> which is probably what I am now, to be honest. Well, Sally, my experience is almost completely a parallel or mirror image of mm. yours. I was always envious of my friends who just wanted to be lawyers or doctors or um, just whatever was a set career path. I never had that set path. Yes. Um, and I always craved it. But I think in a lot of ways, having the generalist kind of um, the way of thinking. Is sort of a really valuable um, lens to help you decide what to do next. I'll run with that because yeah. that makes me sound like I was really sensible in some choices. <laughs> I think that that's changed over time a lot too because in the past I think people traditionally did feel a bit um, under pressure to go into traditional uh, career pathways and now you can see there's all these career opportunities opening up. So it's good that people can hear your experience and realise you don't have to go into uni with a set idea of what you're going to find at the other end. It's really interesting because I went to a, I was really fortunate. I went to an all-girls private school um, and it was kind of, it felt like a given that we would all go to university after we finish school, like that's just what you do. Um, and we used to hang shit on the um, careers advisor who used to say things like, don't discount TAFE. Like we used to mock him, don't discount TAFE, don't discount TAFE. <laughs> we're like, as if we're going to go to TAFE, like yeah. that's not going to happen. But A, snobby, ridiculous. But mm. B, it, because you can't name what you want to do in the future, it means that you do feel like you need to say, I'm going to do law because that's most obvious about what you're going to do. Because my one of my biggest regrets in life is I should have done a commerce Degree or a business degree. Uh, I should think you should strike that off your regret list. <laughs> I, I did. And, uh, I think yeah. I should know more about economics and things. Well, I feel that, like so that- economics is really interesting and cool, but it's di- like I, f- I felt with commerce, right, you have to be an accountant, you have to be in finance, or you have like that's, every degree sort of tries to streamline you. And if you just like the foundational stuff that helps you be better as a person in terms of what you know and how you think, um, there's not a whole lot there, but for me now, like in my mid thirties, I love economics. So I, yeah. I kind of, I've, I've only recently in the past few years awakened myself to the, um, the different, um, schools of economics through reading blogs and stuff. Mm. I just, yeah, I feel like it was a misstep, but it wasn't because I had no information mm. from which to base it on mm. basically. But, um, the masters of human resources that made sense. So that I started doing management subjects and business subjects as well as the traditional HR subjects. Um, tried to get a job after um, Officeworks, so four years at Officeworks, um, and nothing motivates me more than someone telling I can't do it, do something. Yep. And so my um, store manager at Officeworks, I still remember her name, Margaret, told me. Margaret, I hope you're listening. <laughs> it's a direct call out. <laughs> Margaret said to me, just because you want to get a job outside of Officeworks doesn't mean you're going to get one. And I'm like, well, bugger this. 
you've never seen someone apply for so many jobs. <laughs> I wonder how long she's been at Officeworks. I don't know. Like I'm all for Officeworks. I love about it. Margaret, like what she's up to now. <laughs> She would have retired because she was, an, yeah, she was an older woman at that time. And she was a great store manager, but I just, it wasn't for me. Like I just wanted to do something different. And it wasn't that I thought that that was bad. It was just that wasn't what I wanted to do because she was trying to encourage me to apply for the store management kind of pathway kind mm. of thing. Anyway, got a job at Siemens Um only because of my network, because it was really hard to get a job. So I got an admin assistant job um, at the Malvern Tram Depot. So if you ever see the 3509 tram, that's called Sally, or it used to be called Sally on the little job sheets, because that was my tram. <laughs> that's awesome. That's the only thing I got out of that job, no. <laughs> um, Presumably my, some good references too. <laughs> yes, and people liked Siemens on my resume. Yeah. Um, and so my plan was to go to Siemens, be an admin assistant, and then move across into the HR department whilst I was studying my master's. So great, great plan. Um, four months into my gig, the HR department downsized. Um, and I was like, I am not staying at the tram depot. This is not happening. This is not my future. I'm over trams. Yeah. I like, I'm happy that I understand what a controlled document versus an uncontrolled document is now. <laughs> Cause I didn't know that before. That might be a life skill that I'll need. Um, but then I ended up, um, applying for and taking a job in job services. Um, and so job active, I think it's called yep. now, so employment services. So working with a caseload of 100 uh, long-term unemployed people um, and helping, encouraging, forcing, coercing them to look for work and apply for mm. work um, so that they didn't, were no longer reliant on Centrelink benefits. Was that through an employment agency or was that government run or how does that work? It was, so they, it was Salvation Army, mm -hmm. um, Employment Plus, and it was their commercial arm of the Salvation Army. And so they worked to a government contract. So lots of rules and regulations and databases and things like that and very much very clear measures of success. Um, so when someone gets a job, stays in a job for a period of time. It's like data heaven. It is. And it's when it's one of your first proper jobs out of uni, it's really good to have rules for me anyway to understand how things might work in the real world um, and what you what you need to do to be successful. That was very clearly laid out on the table. Um, but what I really liked was the people. Um, so back in Officeworks, I worked in Officeworks Frankston. Um, so you've got all kinds of people go to Officeworks. It's like an Australia Post. I Everyone love Officeworks. <laughs> it's one of my, you know, like Officeworks and JB Hi-Fi, I'd say my two favourite places to be. Would Big you agree, mega stores. Um, JB Hi-Fi, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> There's a lot More of tech in this tech. room. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, a lot of expensive tech. Um, but that idea... I guess of, yeah, managing that case and working with people who had many challenges in their lives. So people become long-term unemployed for a variety of reasons. Um, and I liked that whole raft of people. So I had people who were generationally uh, or from families of generational unemployment um, all the way through to family. Uh, so men, there was a lot of men on my case, like 50-year-old men because um, the whole IT system was changing and so they had skills in mainframe, I think it was called, and they, so they were unemployable because we'd all moved to something else Um so you had the whole gamut of people that you were working with. Um, so I bounced around there for four years, um, which was great. It was long as I'd stayed in a job, apart that's, from office work. That's a good stint, four years. I yeah. feel like that's a good amount of time. So what was I, 23 to 27-ish? Because you started work so early. So I thought you were going to say I was like 32, uh, 33. I love work. You're yeah. fine. <laughs> yeah. No, just, yeah. Why, is this, why do you think it's so important to you and why was it so important for you to get started so early? Freedom. Um, and then... You know, when I was at um, the Salvos, so I was an employment consultant and I became an area manager, so quite an important job and, like, responsible for, I don't know what it was, a $20 million budget or something like that. 
and, you know, being 25, 26, looks pretty weird. But for me, it was about, I wanted to travel. Um, and I wanted to, I didn't want to do that thing where you go to London and you live somewhere not so nice and you work in a pub. That wasn't the kind of travel I wanted to do. I wanted to be able to travel and go for four weeks and see a whole lot of stuff and stay somewhere kind of nice um, and experience a whole lot of things. So yeah. I needed to get a good job that paid okay or paid well enough so yeah. that I could do that kind of thing. You weren't into the um, the backpacker uh, stay in dives I'm, and work in dives I'm kind too of precious for that. <laughs> <laughs> I did backpack when I was 21 and I think because I did that with my friend Katie and we were backpacking for seven weeks. And so I feel like I just did enough of that. Got so out could... of the system. <laughs> you thought you'd accumulated enough dust and bacteria by I was evolving. I was things. evolving as yep. a person. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, so, so you finish up after four years at Job Active at Selvos. And then yeah. uh, what's next? Jump into Headspace, the Youth Mental Health Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, that was an employment link. That reason I got that job is because the Headspace brings together mental health, health um, employment and something else, um, education, um, to wrap around service for young mm. people. So that's how I got that gig, got interested in health, um, felt like that was something I can, could, could contribute to, um, and quickly moved on to Breast Cancer Network Australia. Um, so I was in charge of a team that was providing support and services to people who were diagnosed with breast cancer. Um, but after two issues, I realized that it wasn't health that really floats my boat. Um, the thing that I really was missing was being and interacting with people who have disadvantage in their life of some description. Um, health, breast cancer is a disadvantage, like it's a big thing to yeah. overcome. But I was really missing um, working with people on the margins. Um, and so like the long-term unemployed people, just people with a variety of experience and feeling like I could really contribute in some way. I want to feel useful um, in the work that I do and I felt like there was more that I could do. So I started to look for jobs um, and I found a job at The Big Issue. And I applied for that job as the national operations manager then. Um, and after the longest interview process known to man. How many? How many? <laughs> Ten weeks. Ten, Ten weeks, three interviews. Three interviews. Yeah. Wow. And a very um, interesting interview process where I'd do the interview and the recruiter would call and I, they would say, how did you go? And I would say, I'm either the smartest person they've ever met or the dumbest person they've ever met because I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Because I had very good poker faces in the interview process, my boss. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, I've been at The Big Issue now for coming up to nine years and um, recently Homes for Homes um, in the last two years. I'm still taken aback and amazed at the amount of years of work you've done. You, <laughs> you're embarrassing me in front of my wife, which is uh, not appreciated. But So that's an incredible journey. Before we dive into some of the other stuff, I would love to hear a bit about what The Big Issue does. Now, most people know it as the, the organisation that provides the, ma- the magazines and then um, people who are housing insecure sell those magazines mm-hmm. to help themselves. Mm-hmm. Um, and then also Homes for Homes, what that's all about. Sure. So The Big Issue, um, we've been around for 23 years. Um, and yes, we're most well known for that street magazine. So vendors um, who are homeless, marginalised and disadvantaged purchase magazines from us for $4.50 and then they sell them on the street for $9, keeping the difference. So they are um, employed by themselves, um, choosing when when and how they work um, and given the opportunity, I guess, to earn an income. So the big issue is all about creating opportunities for people to positively change their lives. And one of the main drivers that we think um, changes people's lives is employment. So you can see why I work there and why it mm. makes sense to me. Absolutely. Um, and so the offshoots, I guess, of that magazine is we um, have a subscription enterprise. So you can buy a subscription to the big issue um, and that will help employ homeless, marginalised and disadvantaged women. Um, and they will 
pick and pack your magazine. So um, we're basically creating a mail house um, but where women will put the magazine into a plastic sleeve um, with your address on it. So basically the most inefficient mail house in the entire world. <laughs> That's our job is to create as many jobs as possible. Yeah. Um, and then we run some education programs. So we have a university program and also a classroom which um, provides education to young people around homelessness and disadvantage stereotypes and things like that. That's awesome. Take me into also Homes for Homes. I'd love to hear a bit more about yeah. that. Yeah. So Homes for Homes um, is a new social enterprise that's so been around for almost three years now. Um, and it was created by the big issue, but it comes from an, from an idea from the United States. Um, so there's a property developer over there called Lennar, and they invented this mechanism whereby you apply um, a charge or a legal mechanism to a property title. And at the time that a person um, sells that house, they'll make a 0.1% donation to a fund that then gets dispersed. That idea was heard about by a couple of CEOs in Melbourne who are working homelessness services. Um, and the big issue ended up incubating that idea and doing a series of feasibility studies um, around that idea. But instead of applying it to just one property developer, asking what if we applied the model to the whole of Australia um, and encouraged everyone to have a whole of community response to ending homelessness. And so what was formed was Homes for Homes. So Homes for Homes um, asks individual homeowners um, and property developers to make a promise to end homelessness by applying a caveat to their property title. That means at the time that you sell, you'll make a 0.1% donation to the Homes for Homes Fund, and that money is then dispersed to housing providers through a competitive tendering process. So Homes for Homes isn't a builder ourselves, where our job is to raise that money and then disperse it to people who can um, provide housing or increase the supply of housing. That's very exciting. And what's the uptake like so far of Homes for Homes here? Yeah, so our focus at the moment has been working with property developers primarily. So um, if I have a conversation with one person, you might register your house. But if we have a a conversation with a property developer, they might open up a 10,000 a year property portfolio to us. Um, So we're really um, thankful we have some great developers on board, GroCon and Mervac Capital Airport Group in um, the ACT. Um, and other many other great developers. Um, so we've got a property pipeline um, of over 5,000 properties, basically, based on what we have at the moment in terms of those developers, mm. and about 17 developers signed on. So we're ahead of schedule um, from where we thought we would be. So we're about to release our second lot of funding. Yep. Um, and so is this something that's been more popular than you've anticipated with the uh, developers? I think... More appealing? I don't know if we... I reckon that we think it's really great. <laughs> And I guess if you don't think it's great, I think you, you just don't understand it yet. So I don't yeah. think I think that it's more. That's like a new product to market kind of approach, yeah. isn't it? It's a complete, it's a startup. Home mm-hmm. There is nothing to compare it to. Um, so it's a completely different space to work in as compared to the big issue, which is, you know, solid foundation 23 years behind it. This is completely new. Nothing like it exists um, in Australia or even in the world, even though there's that model in um, the States, it's slightly different. Um, so I think. We've been really, not surprised, we've been warmed and like it's really nice to feel like people want to contribute and be part of this community. And is the next tier to that kind of growth, is that is the next tier to that growth then consumers and what consumers will do, whether individuals will, obviously the impact will be different and it's not as big a scale, but are you also going out to the general public and um you know, putting the call out if anyone wants to be involved in Homes for Homes, they, they should? Yes. Yeah, so if you anyone can register their house now very easily on um, the Homes for Homes website, um, but definitely the next iteration, I guess, of what our marketing looks like is about property developers and then we will definitely, um, you will see more of us, I think, over, you know, over a period of time. But we need to be really careful and considered and about how we use our resources at the moment. Um, so it very much needs to be about bulk you know, uptake of Homes for Homes and then a consumer campaign coming a little bit later 
Um, but it's it won't work unless the whole community gets behind it. So developers are one stream, individual homeowners, and all the other channels, I guess, that reach homeowners as well. And what do you think the barriers might be for that in, individual sort of uptake? Is there any reason why um, individuals wouldn't get it? Because it seems to make a lot of sense to me. Is it a kind of transmission <laughs> or legacy assets kind of thing that's standing in the way, private ownership? I think it's – so we take Homes for Homes as a generational change initiative, so it will take a while for people to understand it and to want to take it up. So we'd liken it to recycling, like it mm. took a fair time for people to get, okay, so the green bins for that kind of stuff and the yellow bins for this, or wearing seatbelts. Um, so that's how we see it. So we want to embed Homes for Homes in the property sector. So when you are buying and selling a house, Homes for Homes is part of that process. I need to get a conveyancer. I need to make sure my Homes for Homes paperwork's in order. I need to paint the fence because it's going to look better in the photos and things like that. So we want to be part of that DNA in terms of uptake, I think it's you are choosing where your charity dollar goes um, when you sign up to Homes for Homes. The benefit is you don't have to make a donation or you're not asked to make a donation until you sell your house. And hopefully when you sell your house, you've made more money than what you thought or you've made more money than what yeah. you paid for it at least. Yep. Um, and so that donation happens as part of the disbursement process. And so when people decide to sign up to that, are they then saying that we – Give you give directly to you the big issue of homes for homes that money, and then you will um, commission or um, buy a property for certain homeless. So what happens people? is you make a donation to the homes for homes sure, fund, sure, and then housing providers apply to that fund for oh, that okay, funding. Great. So you're like a platform in a way. Yeah, we're, we think we're the world's biggest crowdfunding campaign. Great. Um, so it's not money for us. For us, it's about how do we how do we leverage what we're good at, which is bringing people together and trying to get people to. Um, be part of change and um, how you can make positive change in your community mm. and using that energy to then create this fund that then gets dispersed. So there's a lot of complexity in that alone. And I, I wonder as COO um, how that kind of goes for you, having such a complex homes for homes here and then the big issue here and then all the other projects in between and how your purview across all those things plays out. And what does your day look like because of that? My day looks pretty crazy. Um how do I do both of those things is because I have really good staff um, and I have a really good organisation around me and support structure around me in that workplace. Um, our staff are incredibly committed and dedicated and I think that to work in a space like we work in, um, you know, at the end of the day, some of my salary comes from homeless and disadvantaged people selling a magazine on the street. Mm. Um, and if I don't feel like I can give my job my all um, and be paid for paid by homeless and disadvantaged people, then I shouldn't be in my organisation is my viewpoint. And I think a lot of the staff, you feel like everything you do goes back to it's going to achieve something but also there is like a bit of a weight that comes with how am I spending my time how is this resulting in something good happening for someone that's awesome that, that's such an impact focused answer so I think we might quickly jump to our humans purpose plus uh, quick fire section because that's very aligned and that's where we do a little bit extra for our wonderful patreon supporters so I might throw a couple of questions um, to you This section is exclusive to our wonderful Patreon supporter community. If you believe strongly in helping people to traverse a meaningful career and life journey, well then we urge you to get behind the podcast and support us to make this content each and every week. In doing so, you'll have access to 20% bonus content in every episode, as well as a great range of options for both humans and now organizations too. Just hit the link in the show notes. It's awesome. Awesome. And so how did you find those questions? <laughs> um. 
Good. They're just, yes, reflective questions, yeah. I guess. That wasn't a question, by the way. It was just <laughs> a, 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 a bonus. Yeah, the book yeah, ones yeah. really hard. Like if, whenever someone says, like, what's your favourite book or what's music? I can't name stuff. Um, it's, so hard I did, to, it's hard to recall, isn't it? Yes. So off the top of your head. And also because I think I'm hyper aware of, like, telling you something intellectual probably at the moment. Yeah, but your, um, <laughs> your recollection on the spot of the Margaret Mead quote was outstanding. It I is mean, literally on the back of my iPhone. Okay. <laughs> I don't think you do yourself enough credit because you, you I was just watching you can't see you. I thought you were lost to get that quote and then you just pulled it out of somewhere. It was Came amazing. Out of, yeah. I am that kind of person that yeah. they, I, it's kind of like it comes out like Tourette's as yeah. well. Like when I remember saying, here it is, it's come down. <laughs> Lou, did you, I'm conscious I've hogged the airway. That's do you have okay. Anything you want to ask you're, the, you're, you're in the you know, driver's seat. Um, I just had a couple of questions. So I'm really interested to know you've got a, a five-year-old daughter, I think you yes. said. Um, you're uh, such an inspiring woman in leadership and what you've done in such a short time is really um, quite amazing. I just wondered, number one, um, do you, does she ever ask you what you do and how would you go about explaining it, just given that it is sort of a confronting area of work and um, I think young children, like I certainly at a young age don't think I had a good grasp of homelessness and what that means, um, certainly coming from a privileged sort of background. So has that ever come up or if it were to come up, how would you go about talking about it? So if you, a year ago, if you asked her what I do for work, she would say um, I talk on the phone and I work on a computer. Um, and then I brought her home a couple of magazines and I was like, this is what mummy makes a magazine. That was the easiest way to explain it. Um, because I don't think she would understand homelessness and we live in a, a um, an area where homelessness isn't visible. Um, it, it exists cause I, you can see it if you look for it, but it, you can't, um, she wouldn't know what a homeless person is mm. or someone begging. It just wouldn't come into her um, face. I'm super aware of making sure that I create opportunities where she can see all different bits of society so coming into the city um, and my intention is to bring her into work um, hopefully in the next you know six months or so and take her to a vendor breakfast or something like that just so she can see more of what I do because she's really quite interested in it so she says you know her dad builds roads and her mum makes a magazine that's how Mm. she positions it at the moment Um, but in terms of you know being a role model for my daughter, which is always so weird. But for me, like what I've tried to encourage is we, you know, we talk about you do your best, even if you're not perfect, you just do your best, um, what you can do. And then very much trying to break down because she even now has role stereotypes of what, about what boys do and what girls do. And I don't know where she's got it from, but she's been telling everyone that mum's the boss of our house. <laughs> and I don't know how that happened. Um, Maybe my husband said it facetiously, but she's taken it as gospel. So I'm just running with that and going, okay. I am the Let boss. Let me just uh, take a guess. Is your husband very disorganised compared to you? <laughs> no, because he's in like logistics operations oh, and wow. stuff, um, which I'm meant to be good at, but I'm not always that good at. No, so there's similarities in what we do. He's very organised and focused. But, yes, so I think it's, yeah, I try to remove the gender stereotypes kind of stuff and I'm very hyper aware of that um, – the life that she has means that she doesn't see everything and how I can create opportunities for her to see more than her bubble. But also, um, if you don't mind me jumping in, Lou, it sounds like there's very much a co-parenting sort of um, equity lens on how you're doing things. So yes. mate, is, that, is that very intentional sort of core yes, part of we both are? made a baby. Yep. It's yep. Both, yep. <laughs> it's both of our responsibility. <laughs> and Adam is great. He's great, but is he great or is he normal? I never know like what the answer is to that. Um, but, yes, it's very much shared. So we have a very organised diaries. If you look in our Outlook calendars every single day, you know, at 7 a.m. and 5 p.m., it'll say someone's picking up Maggie um, throughout the okay. week. Okay, so have you found that effective to have a shared calendar? 
uh, it's not a shared calendar. It's a we just send each other invites. But so ah, it is kind cool, of. But cool. yeah, so I you, can't. So you. So because I'm trying to desperately get Lou onto um, having <laughs> either a shared calendar or like um, event invitations. It's funny because the, like you know I said to Lou. Let's do this. Where, where we've got an event that we both need to be at, I'll send you an invite so it goes in your calendar. And then she, the first time she does it was like two <laughs> days day ago. Before. Yeah, she sent me a, an email inviting me to her GP appointment. I said, <laughs> so I don't need to know about that. And am I invited? I was like, trying this to is be weird. inclusive, was, firstly. Yeah. Secondly, I feel like if I can't attend and I click declined, it's a bit rude. You're so, <laughs> so polite. <laughs> So I, tonight it's in the diary, in Adam's diary. It'll yep. say Sally out. We're totally going to do that, babe. Okay. It sounds like a very Part efficient Part of the issue is it. that I'm a Mac um, user. Mike's That's deviated away from Apple. So our um, calendars term. are not well aligned at no, the no, moment. That, that, like, that is interoperability <laughs> is the term. <laughs> and that is no longer a barrier. <laughs> like calendar invites go across all platforms, sweetheart. So we can't use that anymore. Anyway, enough about us and our relationship <laughs> dynamics. You guys need to get something. No. <laughs> yeah, you need help. <laughs> Um, Sally, I was really interested to ask you, I was reading a little bit about um, the women's um, subscription, uh, subscription enterprise. I just, I'm very passionate about um, representing women and how women um, maybe up, up until more recently have felt uh, less well represented in different spaces. And um, I'm just interested to know how did that come about and how's that going? I understand it's very big in Perth, but is that happening in other states? Yeah, so the women's subscription enterprise um, creates jobs for homeless and disadvantaged women through the sale of subscriptions. Um, and the reason it came about is that we looked at our population of vendors. So this is, what is it, nine years ago? Um, and we realised that 85% of the vendors were men. Um, and so the question had to come up is why aren't more women taking up this work opportunity because we know homelessness and disadvantage affects the sexes equally. Um, and so we spoke to some women's group and they said, um, it's not an appropriate work opportunity, basically. So asking mm -hmm. a woman um, who's often the primary carer of children um, to stand on a street corner with all the connotations of standing on a street corner um, yep. as a woman, um, that work opportunity isn't appropriate. And equally, the greatest cause of homelessness in Australia is domestic violence, which does um, affect women more than men. Um, and so being um, exposed, I guess, as a woman on the street and selling magazines to a man wasn't going to work. Um, and so that's how we came up with this work opportunity that mm. was more appropriate. So it's a female-friendly workplace. Um, it's within school hours. So if women do have to drop off kids or pick them up, then they can come to work in that um, four-hour block. Um, and it operates now in Melbourne, Sydney, Adelaide and Perth as well. And have you had much feedback from the people who work there? How, how have they received it? Have they found that it's been positive? Do you think that it's increasing the number of people, employment opportunities? Yeah, so we've employed, I think we're up to about 180 women since we've wow. um, started. Um, some women will use it as a stepping stone into other mainstream employment opportunities. So we've had women go on and work um, in call centres. One woman went on and worked as a concierge in like a PwC kind of firm. Um, but for other women, they won't be able to access mainstream employment. So an overarching theme of the whole of the big issue is that most of the employment opportunities we provide are for people who can't access a nine-to-five job for whatever reason because they're still um, dealing with mental ill health or alcohol and drug issues or because they can't work for more than two hours a day or whatever it might be. Um, and so some women, um, like Susie comes to mind, um, who I don't believe she had ever had a job before she came and worked with us. She had to get a bank account. Um, for the first time because you have to get a tax file number, mm, all that kind of, of stuff. Um, but she's been working with us now for almost those nine years. But I wouldn't think Susie would be have the capabilities to work in her mainstream employment jobs because mm. there's too much other stuff going on with her. 
Interesting. Um, and I'm just wondering, um, the other thing that I'd read about is that um, Big Issue's gone a bit um, electronic or um, it's it's taken up a new technology yes. so it allows people, because we're all, you know, cashless society, um, that, you know, you can pay with like a barcode type yep. setup. I'm just really interested to know how do you find, how are vendors finding that? So this is hands down my career highlight was um, at the Big Issue is implementing the digital payments. So we know less people are carrying cash now. Um, so November last year, we implemented two digital payment solutions. So one is a tap and go device um, and the other is Beam It, which is an app. So you can download the app and then pay the vendors that way. Um, the take up has been okay. Um, so with vendors, there's a, it's really hard change management because people haven't necessarily um, used technology before. They don't necessarily use tap and go because they run cash businesses most of the time. Um, so as part of this, to be able to use that tap and go device, you needed a smartphone. So we had vendors purchasing smartphones for the first time. Um, and my favorite story is a vendor in Melbourne who went and purchased an iPhone. Like he had a better phone than me um, at the time. <laughs> um, and he'd been taking photos and um, doing videos and things like that. And then he came into the office after two weeks of having the phone and said, um, can I borrow your phone? And they're like, what do you mean? He goes, I don't have a phone anymore because I had to buy that other thing so I could use the tap and go. And they're like, oh, that iPhone is a phone as well. It's not just for tap and go. So that's the kind of group that we're working with yeah. where technology is completely foreign. So we're seeing um, more and more vendors take it up, more and more customers using the tap and go device. But for us, this is like phase one. So digital payments isn't going away. We're becoming more and more cashless. So our view was we need to get on the front foot with the vendors because we know how long it takes mm -hmm. for change to happen. Um, so that when cash almost disappears in the next five years, they will be equipped to be able to run their businesses. Um, so it's definitely not overtaking cash in any way, shape or form. But I hope that we've kind of future-proofed the vendors' businesses by starting this process now. Yeah, I think it's a fantastic way of um, being innovative and, you know, providing them um, other um, opportunities to still get business because we know that, you know, people just walking past they may not have the right cash or they may yeah. not have cash. And this way that they can still, you know, um, make a bit of yeah. um, a, a good income. So that's really interesting. What about um, digital as far as the actual magazine goes? Are, are you are like, is there a way for vendors to sell like non-physical publications yet or are you thinking you're moving into that space? So we've had a digital edition for a while mm -hmm. that we're um, just ceasing at the moment because mm -hmm. it has such low uptake sure. um, and the technology is changing. So one of our biggest challenges is that in order to create the work opportunity, you have to create an interaction with a customer. Of course. So most digital subscriptions, you just sign up online and then you download it onto your yeah. phone. So to buy one of our digital subscriptions, you had to buy a card off a vendor and then download it. So it's kind of a clunky process because the reason why you do a digital subscription is for ease and convenience. Yep. Um, so we're re-looking it at the moment. But vendors weren't interested in the digital edition. So if you think about our business model is the big issue actually sells magazines to vendors who then sell them to readers. Yep. So my relationship is actually with vendors. And if my customer, the vendor, doesn't like the product that I'm offering them, they just won't buy it from us. And, so, mm. and I suppose um, I'm forgetting there the all-important human element, yes. which is sort of at the core of the big issue and that kind of yeah. success over the long term. One of the things that's really nice about the big issue when you do vendor surveys so you ask like why did you sign up to be a vendor and it was for money and then the question like why did you stay is because of the connection and being part of a community um so we like to you know it's like having a positive gang environment is what we're trying to create um but they're all very independent people um they come together once a fortnight for a magazine release and a breakfast um and then they kind of go off on their own way for the rest of the fortnight so they are um 
Yeah, they're running their own businesses. It's like kind of like a franchise, but without the franchise bit of it. Do you see this quite entrepreneurial? What what they're doing, and are, are the better vendors quite entrepreneurial on how they do their work? I, it's. I think there's um, there's a duration game to it. So the longer you are out selling, the more magazines you'll sell, regardless of your sales style. Sure. Um, I think that it is incredibly brave and um, strong of them to sell the magazine because I have tried to give out free magazines at events and I'm crap at that. Mm. And so the resilience that vendors need to be able to stand out there on crowded streets. I couldn't give out anything. That's why I make the podcast. I just put it out there digitally (laughs) and if people want to listen, I don't have to be part of that exchange. I really, like I have massive respect for vendors Mm. because I think that if you are disadvantaged or homeless in some way but you're making a positive choice, about a way to change your life and that involves putting yourself out there yeah. every day and putting on a fluoro vest and saying who you are and that you're selling the Big Issue magazine, um, I think that's incredible because I think that that takes a whole lot of courage to be able to do that. And as a sort of fellow introvert, I am one too, um, I wonder like for you is part of having more of a platform and, you know, reaching more people through your role and privilege and opportunity is is part of something that you have to overcome sort of getting out there and just speaking publicly and being more kind of a person that pushes out messages and um you know speaks more to the public is that a challenge for you um i yes so i um the reason i ended up at a private school is because i was like so introverted and i couldn't talk to people kind of thing and so i started to come out of my shell through that kind of school opportunity but still public speaking mortified me um And I took the job at the big issue knowing, like it was part of the interview process, like how comfortable do you feel speaking to the media? Um, And I'd done some media training. I was like, yep, no, I can do that because I wanted the job. And so I forced myself to do media and to do public speaking. The best bit of it is, is that it has actually got easier. Yes. I think there's an exposure therapy element (laughs) to it. And so I do this thing where I say yes to more things, even if it seems a bit left left of centre, if it's an opportunity to speak and to try something different and put myself out there in a different place, I'll, I'll sometimes say yes. So that NDIS talk that I did, it's mm. not related necessarily overly to my work, mm. but it made me have to try something different to but be more um, confident. You'd better speak at other things as well. Lou, Lou weren't you saying that Sally spoke at... Um, it was, was I it? think it was something recently I, I read. Um, Women's Leadership Breakfast. Oh, I think that was last year. That was last year. Yeah. We did research. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> I can't tell. It sounds like I'm a stalker. <laughs> no, not a stalker. I'm like, I just wanted to understand. I, I felt like, you know, um, when you go in the city, you see people or vendors selling big issue all the time. And I felt like I had a really poor understanding of what it actually involved and all the associated work that you guys do. So I felt it was really important to actually not seem completely unintelligent about this topic. <laughs> and I think it's um, particularly more so because I work in the health area and and we do see people from time to time who are disadvantaged, or many people who are disadvantaged. But um, there, once you're in the hospital, you're kind of um, looked after um, for a period of time, and then you don't really know necessarily what happens to people after that point. So like, the work that you're doing is really important, looking after people in the community, which we don't get to see every day. So, and that public speaking bit of it, like you know, the forcing yourself to do it for me, it's part of my job, and so I see myself as being able to have a voice. For people who don't necessarily get a voice, which is how you justify bit- kind of pushing yourself into things. It's sort of saying this is in line with my purpose, which is to do this for these people. Yes, and what if this opportunity means that ten people register their home 
with Homes for Homes or I convert another five people to being regular purchasers of the magazine. Like I think I have an obligation to take the opportunity because a vendor doesn't have the same opportunity as me. So if I can impact their business in a positive way, then I need to get over my nerves and just go for it. Well, do you, do you have any advice for people who might? I mean, I think that most people don't tend to take a lot of risks, like just putting themselves out there because it's safer not to. Uh, what would you say to someone who's sort of thinking, you know, um, should I be test? How do I, you know, should I test myself more or should I? What's the reason why I should put myself out there? I think that um, it's never as embarrassing as what you think it will be. Like, I'm mortified watching myself on film. I realized another conference had filmed me recently and I'm like oh I don't so I just don't look at it so I think that's my advice is that um do it stop it and then leave it and walk away and move on to the next Mm. thing and don't spend a whole lot of time easier said than done in your head analyzing everything so even this podcast for me I'm not going to listen to it probably I was going to ask you (laughs) I was really hoping you would listen to it but that's okay well I think I've got a clear recollection of what was said but I won't listen to myself because I'll pick fault at myself and that will just damage my um, confidence when I go into the next thing, even though, you know, it's all fine, rah, 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 but you're always more self-critical. So I often will do a thing. So I will get, I'll finish the presentation, the PowerPoint presentation at the conference, and then I'll get my notes and I'll throw them in the bin because that's where I've left it and yeah. I'm moving forward. So I'm not thinking about it anymore. So I have to listen to every podcast to edit it um, <laughs> and make sure that it's good, uh, but I don't, I don't like to because I, uh, I like you, have the recollection. Yeah. So it's sort of like, for me, a bit uh, weird doing that. And when I listen to it and I hear myself, speaking back on the soundtrack, I sometimes think, oh, that's a really good point. (laughs) That's exactly what I would have said. Then I realised, oh, it's me, I did say that. Self-high five. It's really strange. But (laughs) a lot of the times I think, oh, that was a moment where I should have said this and I didn't. Or this is, you know, it is very, very It's very surreal listening back to a conversation you've just lived through, I think. Yeah. But it's also like don't live with regrets. You know, like just you have to leave things alone sometimes. We're we're just like our own worst critic so often that I think, you know, they say with like um, speaking and stuff and doing any of these like public skills that you should critically analyze yourself to get better. I think that's really bad advice. Like I think you should just, I'm with you, just don't listen at all and, you know, do it in your head what you think you could do better and then just go do that. I I believe in so like prepping. So when we do Mm -hmm, filming mm -hmm. for work, I prep with it and I'm happy to do the prep interview questions and stuff like that. But then I can't, then what happens on film, then that's done. And I can't, you can't tell me anything after that. We just leave that alone and we move on to the next thing. Yeah. Take the praise when you get the praise. That's my other advice. If someone says you did a good job, then take that. Don't brush it off. And then that helps build your confidence. So we've covered heaps of ground. We're almost coming up to that hour mark, so we'll wrap up um, shortly. But I did want to ask you, what are your hopes and ambitions and dreams for, um, you know, your your role in, in the big issue and for addressing homelessness sort of as a problem in the next year or two? Yeah, so I, um, I love my job and it continues to evolve. So I've never had a boring year at the big issue or Homes for Homes. Um, my job's changing and it is constantly changing and evolving and more opportunities come up. So it's great working in social enterprise. Um, So different to working directly to a government contract um, is that we can create new businesses and new ideas and test them and try them and hopefully implement them. So in some ways at the big issue, you have a bit of a choose your own adventure that you can be interested in something. If you think it'll create a work opportunity, you can invest some time in it and then see something come to life. I have not created anything new at the big issue. I've been the um, implementer of other people's things, which is not a bad thing. That's what an operations person does. Mm. We're good at doing stuff or getting shit done, as my mug says. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I would love to be able to contribute something really 
like a thing to my organization, like a real tangible project. Digital payments is one of them for sure, but I would really love to be able to start something from scratch and whether that's something expanding, something that we already have um, to a new market, to a new geography or something like that, that's what I would like to do in that next bit. Um, And in the homelessness space, for me, it's reminding people I want to still be part of solutions and I want to be part of being able to remind people that we can all make a difference and there's little things that you can do that can make a difference. Um, so you can buy a magazine or you can donate to the charity that you think is most deserving um, or you can register your home with Homes for Homes or whatever it might be, but to not feel like you have to create, you don't have to be a billionaire philanthropist to make a difference, that if we all do a bit, then that will make a difference. And it sounds um very do-gooder of me like you know that's a I am a do-gooder like I want to do good in the world um but I just want to be amongst people and around people that all are pushing forward um and are trying to create change for those people who can't create their own change that's so well said and I think that's perfect way to sum up do you have anything to close I guess the only I don't want to be the last one to talk (laughs) but uh, I just want to say it's really amazing that the work that you're doing is also empowering people to help themselves it's not just giving handouts and saying here you go um, make what you will with it but they're actually learning important life skills and then hopefully that's a stepping stone for them to um, make their lives better in some way and the fact that you emulate that in your own life is also really impressive so I think um, you don't see that all the time, people actually living out the their purpose of what they're trying to achieve within their organisation. So really interesting to hear you today. Thank you. Well said. And so just as a sort of um, final call to action, if people do want to um, register for Homes for Homes, how do they do that? Very easily. You go to homesforhomes.org.au and then up the top it says register my property. Um, and it's really easy to do if you have your rates notice in front of you because it has your lot and folio, et cetera, details on it. Otherwise, if you don't have that handy, just enter your address and we can fill in the rest of it. Um, and as I said earlier, the more people that register home, the more impact that we'll be able to have as a community. Terrific. And how can people um, contact you and learn more about your wonderful work? Oh, that's very kind. They can contact me on LinkedIn. I'm getting better at it. I'm being much more into LinkedIn because I think it is a really good tool to connect with like-minded people and also expand your network. So, yes, LinkedIn. Awesome. And obviously to hit the big issue, that's bigissue.org.au. Yep. Yep. Fantastic. Well, Sally, thank you so much for coming on tonight. Been a great guest. Thanks, Sally. Thank you for having me. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure you hit the subscribe button in your podcast player or the link in today's episode notes. Why not share the podcast with your networks? After all, 62% of our subscribers come from word-of-mouth recommendations and social shares. You could also leave us a five-star review and some kind words in the iTunes store. If you love what we do each week and want to support the show, you should join our growing community of Patreon supporters or consider becoming a show sponsor. To learn more about all of that, just head to humansofpurpose.com. 